but our core motivation really goes back to the fact that there's so many folks and companies who don't love what they do. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without losing your soul or your mind in the process. Today, I am so excited to bring you an interview with a special guest. His name is Rich Behrens, and Rich is the co-author of What Are Your Blind Spots? Conquering the Five Misconceptions That Hold Leaders Back. Rich is also founder, owner, Rich, is that right, of Root Inc., an organization that drives organizational change and works primarily with Fortune 2000 companies all over the world. Rich, welcome to the show. David, thanks for having me. So, Rich, I ask every guest, and I'm always intrigued by these answers, what is your first memory of yourself as a leader? Wow. Okay. My first memory of myself as a leader. You know, to, to, to be very honest with you, my, the first memories of myself as a leader are, are moments where I wasn't a great leader, to be honest. And I'll take you all the way back to an assistant coach at the University of Michigan. I was, I was a graduate student, and uh, I was coaching tennis. Uh, because I played in college, I tried to play semi-pro after, and so uh, I thought I'd keep myself busy. And, uh, uh, and so I had the privilege of, of working on the University of Michigan tennis staff. And uh, I still remember, I, I, I'd play with the guys, you know, not, obviously not on the team anymore as a player, and I'd play with the guys uh, trying to coach them to be better. Uh, but the competitive spirit in me still got the best, and so still vividly remember playing with one of them and I knew his backhand was a little suspect when you hit the ball kind of low. And so I'd wait for the, uh, the critical moments and I'd pick on that shot and I really wouldn't share with him the, the weakness that I saw, right? Because I knew I could take advantage of it at the right time to win matches against him. Hmm. And so I still remember kind of going off the court and, uh, the, the head coach, Brian Eisner, smart guy kind of pulled me aside and, uh, and he said, Hey, Rich, Love having you on the on the team. Love, love your spirit. Love your energy. But but the one thing I need you to understand is that uh, it's not about you winning, but it's about making the other guys better and making them aware of what makes them their best version of themselves. Right. That's really why I need you on the staff. Mm-hmm. Right. And I was like, whoa, uh, powerful moment. Right. And great great lesson. And and to me, it was a when you speak of of leadership sort of lessons or moments. It was the first one where it's, I, saw, I became self-aware around, now it's, it's not about me, it's about making others better. And that's a leadership shift that I had the, the, the privilege for him to call it out to me very early because it's a lesson that stuck with me still 30 years later. But I think it's, a, it's such an important one. And you know, as we work with leaders today, it's, it doesn't always take hold, right? And so that's probably one of my very first moments. Uh, sort of an aha moment by somebody wiser and smarter than me sharing that with me and, and really leaving a mark. That's fantastic, where you really realized in some fashion, I love the way you said it, self-awareness that your job is to help other people become that best version of themselves. I love that phrase. That's one that I, I really resonate with as well. Uh, what a cool moment, and, and what, how fortunate to have that mentor have the courage and confidence to share that with you, right? Absolutely, and the funny thing is it didn't really feel cool at, at the time, right? You hear it, and you're like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of selfish, and, you know, and, and am I being a a good leader, but, but the way he served it up, the opportunity he gave me, and obviously the aha that it created, was, it was a great gift. Mm, fantastic. What a gift. 
The name of this show is Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. And I'm curious, and you've got a lot of experience, 20 years in different organizations and thousands and thousands of leaders. When you see a leader losing their soul, what does that mean to you and, and how does that happen? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question, right? And, and uh, is, it, is it losing their soul or never fully, fully connecting with it? You know, I, I think it happens for a lot, lots of reasons in the organizations that we work with. But primarily, I think as you become more senior in organizations, I think you sometimes lose touch with what, what got you there and what it's like to not be in that position, right? There's even research that says that as we become more powerful and, and have more positional authority, we become less empathetic by how everything is structured around our lives and just by the virtue of having more power. And, and so I think if you're not keenly self-aware, it almost can happen. It's like that boiling frog thing, right? It can happen without you knowing and you're five, six, seven, eight years later into your career and, and you've sort of lost touch with what got you there, what made you that, that, that particular human being. So we, we see that a good amount. And, and then you add to that the, just the pressure of performance in most organizations, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's the, uh, the daily metrics, the weekly metrics, the, the quarterly numbers that, that at times make it difficult uh, to, to not lose sight on, on some of those things that have great long-term benefits that make you really the, the, the best version of yourself and the best leader that you can be. So that self-awareness, a lack of self-awareness combined with performance pressure. And that really is a great segue, and I think has so much to do with the concept of, of your book, right? What are your blind spots? So that's about self-awareness. So let's talk about uh, what are your blind spots, Conquering the Five Misconceptions That Hold Leaders Back, your, your new book. What prompted you to write that book? Yeah, you know, the, you know and, and having done this for, for over 20 years with hundreds of organizations around the globe, uh, my, my, my partner, Jim, Jim Howard, my co-author and I, we, we really felt we had some some stories to share that, that, that others could benefit from. And, and, but, but our core motivation really goes back to the fact that there's so many folks and companies who don't love what they do, right? And, and you look at the stats and, and, and you, you can pull up all kinds of different ones, but they'll tell you that, that somewhere between 50 to 70% of people are indifferent or disengaged in their workplace. And, uh, and, and that's very frustrating for us, right? And, and, and it's very frustrating for many leaders. And, and ultimately, it's not helpful to what the company is trying to achieve and to their profitability, but more so, it's a bit of a human travesty, right? That the place where most of us spend most of our time is also the place where most of us don't really want to be. That's just not good enough, right? And, and, and in many ways, we all own our own engagement, right? That, that's a really important element of this. That said, leaders play a profound role in creating an environment that shapes the ability for people to be more or less engaged. And, and, and some of the blind spots that we saw were, were sort of repeating leadership mistakes that folks were making, often without knowing, with the best of intentions, that got in their way of being a great leader and of creating environments that, that really are conducive to a workforce being engaged and for people really wanting to be a part of, of what the company was trying to create. So, so that was our motivation is this, this frustration that there's got to be a better way and that the status quo just isn't good enough. I love that discontent. It's a discontent that we certainly share here at Let's Grow Leaders. And, you know, I'm glad that you are a loud voice in that choir that is helping to change the way things are. <laughs> 
So when we talk about blind spots, leadership blind spots, and then getting back to self-awareness, what do you mean by blind spots? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks for asking. I think, uh, and let me maybe take a take a step back on blind spots in general, because human beings are are prone to blind spots in terms of beliefs and perceptions, right? And what I mean by that is that you know if if we go a hundred years back, right, and we look at sort of advertisements and what was sold, we'd find that in the 1890s you could buy cocaine toothache drops for kids, right, at your local pharmacy. Mm-hmm. And you kind of shake your head and you go, wow, we, we thought that was normal, right? Um, that was actually okay. Um, and, and, and back then it was, and people weren't chuckling like, like you and I are now. Or, or you can go back as, as little as 50, 60 years ago and look at smoking, right? And, and you'd be surprised by the, the advertisements you find where doctors and dentists are recommending all right. kinds of different cigarette brands and at times even tout their health benefits. And, mm. and pretty much everybody who was a who is who was, was smoking because it was a hip and a cool thing to do, right? Or you go back as little as 30 years and you'd see that there is carbonated soft drinks being touted um, for, for babies and children, right? Or the, the things of you, you can't start cola early enough or, or mix it with uh, – Mix your, um, your, your Sprite or your 7-Up with your baby formula, right, to make it sweeter and have your kid consume it. You, 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 uh, you share that with parents today and they're horrified, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that was only 30 years ago. The point being, at the time, these, thi- these things seemed perfectly normal. And with the benefit of hindsight and a bit more education, we go, we cannot believe that that was a status quo. And, and on the leadership side, we've seen some of those same patterns. We think there's there's some leadership concepts that are that were born out of the industrial age, so to speak, right? That that's that's just the way that we we've, we're supposed to lead, that we were taught to lead, that it's the right way to lead. That I think, with the benefit of hindsight, and, and 20 years from now, we'll look back and we go, I, we can't believe that was a good leadership practice, right? And and so, what is a blind spot? It is where the 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 conventional wisdom of what good leadership is really needs to be challenged because it isn't. It doesn't create the right amount of engagement. It doesn't create really productive outcomes, and it doesn't make you a very good leader, right? And, and those are the things we wanted to shine a spotlight on and we wanted to call out. Well, let's dive into a couple of those. You know, there are five misconceptions that you guys address. You purpose, story, engagement, trust, and truth. And I'd like to dial in a little bit, if we could, on maybe trust as, at first. Um, you know, at first, if you could explain what you mean by that as a misconception, and then uh, want to follow up on that with you. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, trust comes down to the, the, the fundamental concept that most organizations that we talk to say that they trust their employees and they talk about empowerment, but then everything that they put in place in terms of rules, policies, processes, and procedures get in the way of that statement. And so, while they will talk about trust and empowerment, the truth is that the organization is set up in a way that it minimizes risk of liability, that it, that it looks to create sort of generic process that doesn't create uniqueness. And so in many ways, um, we have this, you know, the, the leaders say they do trust, but ultimately they really don't. And that creates mediocre results, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and we see that in, in, in almost the larger the organization is, the more that becomes an issue right? Because they've run into some instance where something didn't go right. So they put a policy in place, right? They, they hire even more lawyers who think about everything that could possibly go wrong. And so they put all those rules in place. And clearly 
there need to be rules in place on things, right? But but it really gets in the way of, of ultimately trusting employees and, and, and employees feel that, right? And when they feel that, they they more follow orders and, and they're more in compliance rather than bring their best selves to work. One of the things in this section on trust that you address, and I think it's really important because every organization wrestles with this tension of how do you deliver consistently on your brand promise? When you walk into a particular outlet or retail or have an experience with a representative of a, of a company, the, as a company, you want to deliver a consistent experience. And yet, as a leader, we know that you need to trust your people and enable them to make those on the, on the ground, in the moment types of decisions in a, in a way that is truly empowering, not falsely empowering the way you were talking about. So how do you address this tension? Uh, and, and particularly, if you have any practical suggestions, would love to hear those for the leaders that are listening to the show today. Yeah, it's, it's a great question, David. And this is really, because this is not a black and white issue, right? This, this, has, this has shades of gray all over it, and there's nuance here to really get this right. And there's a couple of things. So the, the one is you, you first have to ask, where am I on the belief spectrum of how much trust or leeway I should give my folks? And, and to some degree, to be honest, that is driven by the kind of industry you're in, right? And so uh, if you're running a nuclear power plant, uh, your rules and regulations need to be a little bit differently than if you're running a retail operation, right? But, but so there, there's a spectrum of what's, what's, what's right and what's wrong. But what we found is you just have to be really clear on, on your framework. And, and so one thing we encourage leaders to think about is what are your hard lines, your guidelines, and your no lines as you think about this concept of empowerment? So the hard lines are, these are non-negotiable things. And if we have, let's say, we have, if we have 2,000 units of whatever we are around the country, these are the things that are non-negotiable. We will not give you a whole lot of flexibility. We will not give you a whole lot of discretion because they might be around food safety or secure, whatever they are, right? And so sure, we, sure. we cannot be negotiable with them. Then there's guidelines where we have recommendations for how to do things, but we know it needs some local flexibility, right? And then there's no lines, and it's a matter of, hey, just use your best selves to really ultimately do what you think will please the customer. And, and we found that most organizations haven't done the I don't have the clarity on what their hard lines, their guidelines, and their no lines are, and so it gets very blurry, and then then employees are confused, right? The, just one super simple example, but 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 I think an organization that that does it well or or, or practices some of it well is if you look at UPS, right? And uh, their hard lines, what they will say, if if you look at, at at how they do things, when the driver is in the truck, it's all hard lines, even. How you do everything within the vehicle is extremely tightly defined because there's a lot of safety that, that is at play here, obviously. There's very little flexibility. And what they, what they will say then is, but once your foot touches the ground, they go to guidelines and no lines because now it's about how do you bring your personality, your best self, to the customer to create an experience that, that they have loyalty to the brand, right? To the shield, as they would say at, at UPS. And so... So they started to define the clarity of when you do what. And, and I think most organizations have a greater opportunity to drive to a level of clarity with the hard lines, guidelines, and no lines that, that operationalizes trust in a way that, that people can understand and that they can work with. Boy, I just love that. That is such a useful tool. Hard lines, guidelines, no lines. So if you are a senior leader and you're responsible for providing that kind of clarity, would encourage you, if you haven't done that, to do that and empower your people with 
with the information of where they have flexibility and where they shouldn't have flexibility because there's, as you said, you know, as Rich mentioned, the, the customer safety issue or you know, you've got uh, you know, banking regulations you have to follow, for instance. On the other hand, if you're a frontline leader, a middle-level uh, manager, and you're not, right now, you can't identify those hard lines, guidelines, or no lines, you can work with your leaders to come up with that, and you can drive that kind of change just by asking. And it's the sort of thing that just because they haven't thought about it before doesn't mean that they can't work with you if you ask. So it really encourage you to have those conversations up if you are not immediately clear about your hard, hard lines, guidelines, and no lines. Rich, I don't know if you would uh, agree with that or have any advice for maybe a frontline leader who isn't clear on what theirs are. You know, I, I completely agree with you, David, right? And I, I, what I would say is, you know, if, if you're not clear, um, seek the clarity. One is kind of feed that up and seek the clarity, right? And say, hey, can you help me out? And, and you know, and we don't always get the perfect answer when we feed things up the food chain and then use your best discretion, right? Obviously, be smart about the organizational culture that you work within. But hopefully that's a, that, that's a meaningful and powerful framework. Let's say if you're, if you're running a restaurant, you're, you're, you're running a store, right? And, and, uh, um, and then I, what I will say, though, is no matter where you sit, there, there's one thing you, you've, you've got to be more comfortable with. You know, when um, uh, Phil Cordell, who, who used to run the Hampton brand and is a senior executive at, at, at Hilton, uh, who, who really embraced this, you know, he, he said, here's the thing about it. You're going to run into some things in the field where you sort of cringe a little bit and you kind of shake your head like, ooh, I wouldn't have done it this way or I'm not that, that proud of that, right? But he says, but, but for every one of those, there's 20 where I go, holy cow, we would have never thought of this at corporate. And, and it's creating such an energy and passion and difference with our clients and with our customers. We, we would have never been able to do it without this belief. And so... So the reality is you have to be somewhat comfortable. You have to give up control to a degree, right? Because there's going to be some things that are not quite the way you want them to be. And you have to be okay with that because the benefits of what else you're going to get far exceed that, right? Once again, assuming you define your universe of the hard lines, guidelines, and no lines in a, in a smart and pragmatic way. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's really something in, in, important to, I think, to maybe kind of keep in mind as a leader and where you're going to get challenged, right? Because many of us, as leaders are type A personalities. And so we, we have a desire to control or when, when, when it's not quite the way you want to go in and fix it and do it our way. And in that case, that isn't going to really get you the results at scale that you're looking to achieve. Well, and that, that notion of all of the, we call them micro innovations, the, the day-to-day -day enhancements and, and innovative things and differences that people are bringing to the customer, to the product and service, moment by moment, and they may not be these blue ocean kind of new strategic moves, but they're the things that make a difference in the moment and how those scale, so vital. And like you said, you've got to give up some control and it's not all going to go perfectly, but you're going to get the benefit of those if, if you allow them to happen. Absolutely. Well, on that note, let's move to another of the uh, one of the five misconceptions, and that is truth. Because one of the things that you talk about with truth is making it safe for people to tell the truth. Um, we've just completed some research around this, and this uh, concept has a, a core component in our next book that's coming up. So I'm just, I was fascinated to see your take on this. Talk to us about the misconception of truth. It's, it's probably one of my favorites, to be, to be honest. It's one of the most difficult ones for organizations, and, and, and the misconception is that leaders often feel that 
there's way more truth spoken around them than there actually is, right? And that, that it's way more safe to speak the truth than people actually feel that it is, right? And, and so first you have to look into why, well, why, why, why is that, right? What's, what's the natural inclination in an organization? And, and you have to sort of think about what are the quote bubbles that are really in people's heads? Right. Uh, what, what are they really thinking? Because, hey, just tell me the truth. It's, it's you know, no, no big deal. But the, the reality is what's really going on is if you're an employee, if you're a participant, you, you, you're going to be thinking things like, well, if I speak up w w and, and with, with an opinion that's not popular, am I the one who doesn't get the play going forward? Am I the one they're going to look down on? Right. In terms of the, he or she is not on board. Mm -hmm. Right. Will they question my intention that I'm really looking out for the best interest of the business? Will they think I'm not that smart because I maybe say something that they disagree with, right? Um, or is it ultimately, is this a career limiting move, right? And so people have all these things kind of in their thought bubbles that, that get them to probably not volunteer unpopular information very easily unless they feel really comfortable, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and then for leaders, you know, the, the other side of that is why is it maybe sometimes not so open of an environment, even though they want it to be, is, is you know, um, that, that sort of being vulnerable can, you know, if, if you're not fully comfortable with that as a leader, you might say, is, is this open disagreement or critique an, an indictment of my leadership, right? If you don't have a, the, the right environment, that, that, that's the feeling of the emotion that, that the leader might be thinking. Uh, the other one that, that we see often is, well, I'm a leader. I I, I'm supposed to have all the answers, right? And this could make me look like I don't have all the answers or I'm not smart enough. Or it could be, well, am I just allowing complaint sessions, right? Uh, if, if I let people to, 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 to put everything on the table. So, so those are those real dynamics. And what that leads to is that more often than not, people feel more comfortable speaking the truth at, in the hallway, in the bathroom, or at the water cooler, right? I think we've all had those where you leave the meeting and you're with the folks that you're most comfortable with and you're like, okay, I think it's safe. Now we can, now we can say what we really think, right? And, and the great leadership teams have more of those conversations in the room. You'll always have some water cooler conversations, but they have more of them in the room than they do outside of the room. And they're very conscious of the natural dynamics that get in the way of truth telling, right? Even if you're a leader with the best of intentions, you constantly have to be self-aware around the environment and that just about everything around you works against the culture of truth telling, right? Yep. Um, and, and so you have to be very conscious about that and continuously foster it and reinforce it and celebrate it whenever you can. Uh, but so, this really gets in the way of execution. So you, you note a couple of things and I just hone in on the fact that even if you have the desire, even if you want to hear from people, you want to get their truth and get their best ideas and you are secure and confident as a leader, even if all of that is true, there are still forces working against you. You don't know people's past experience. I had, a, I had an employee, like one of my top five employees in the entire organization who one day walked into my office convinced that I was going to fire her. You know, so you don't always know everything else that's going on and to create that intentionality, to create that culture that switches from safe silence, which is for many people their default to stay safe by being silent to become a consistent contributor. So I'm, I'm curious, Rich, if you could give us one or two practical ways that leaders can help to create that culture of, of consistent contribution as opposed to what, what I call safe silence. Yeah, no, and, and I love the, the, the term safe, safe silence. I think that's, that's a really powerful one. 
you know, let me maybe start with a, a quick story and then then go into um, you know some 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 practical hands-on things you can do. You know, we we were working with a, um, a multi-billion-dollar um, con- conglomerate and working on their strategy. About sixty thousand people, and we had their their top two hundred or so together down in a you know fancy resort. How these things work on on kind of getting everybody on the same page on the strategy. And we do a lot of um, kind of interactive work using visual um, uh, systems views of strategy, et cetera, et cetera, to shape dialogue. Anyhow, we felt we were making great progress and having the top 150 all aligned and on the same page. And, and the, at the end of that session, we did the anonymous voting thing, you know, where you kind of like, hey, how many of you would recommend to your friends and family to invest in our stock? And uh, thought, thinking we would ride off into the sunset and uh, with, with, you know, high fives and everything else. And the answer came back. From the top 150 or 200, however many we had there, was was 22%, right? Yeah. <laughs> so your cringy face. We had the sort of the same reaction. We're thinking, okay, we might be fired. But the, the CEO of the of the organization said, hey, wait a second, I'm feeling really good about the strategy. I need you guys to keep digging, right? And so we uh, we we did some interviews and we kept digging. And and what we found is that people really didn't have an issue with the strategy, uh, which was to kind of move from a holding company to more of an operating company and be a bit more integrated but they lack complete faith in the leadership team and how they were behaving with one another um, to execute on it and live the new way of working. So we visualized some of those things that were getting in the way. And, and, and it was a matter of most of the conversations happen outside of the room. We have sort of the who sits at the adult table, who sits at the kiddie table, right? Um, it was people holding up shields that said, I've hit my number in my division, leave me alone, right? And, and so... What that leads me to is a couple of things we did there, and, and, and you can kind of you know, do them wherever you are as a leader is we created, take a few post-its, right? And get with your folks and say, hey, listen, we're gonna, um, we're gonna create two walls. One is a, a wall of greatness, and let's really celebrate. Everybody have one or two comments on the things that we should be really proud of, right? That, that lay the foundation for us to be who we can really be, and then the second wall is going to be the wall of reality. And, and that's where we're going to capture the, the unspoken things or the things that, that we think are really getting in the way of what makes us the best version of ourselves. And let's, let's capture those stories. And so as you, as you capture, the, let's say, the wall of greatness, have people obviously kind of sort them in the right way because there's going to be four or five or six buckets and let them tell the story of what they see. And they can pick a couple of folks and then do the same with the wall of, of reality, right? And the wall of reality will very likely start calling out a few sort of behavioral opportunities, right? Oh, wow, look, we're not doing this all that much. And, and what we often go from there on, we're saying, okay, let's not create a whole complicated list or make this overly, overly difficult, but, but it seems to be there's two or three behaviors, right? Which one might be we, uh, we indict people, we don't really listen uh, before we judge, or, or you know, we, we play it safe in the room, whatever those things might be. But but you make them very conscious. You call them out as a desirable behavior to change. And what we always say is the CEO, whoever the leader is, is like, and you have to go first, be vulnerable, right? The things you have to, you have to lead with something that makes you uncomfortable. Because if you don't, everybody else is just gonna fall in line and not be vulnerable themselves. Amen, and that's right. Leader. And then people call some things out. You have, a, you have an ability to make profound change very quickly, actually. Boy, that, that owning your own vulnerability, demonstrating that role modeling it, makes it safe for everybody else to do the same. What a powerful, powerful tool to use. I hope that as you're listening, you are recognizing so much of the value. And we've only touched on two of 
the five misconceptions that hold leaders back. The name of the book is What Are Your Blind Spots? Conquering the Five Misconceptions That Hold Leaders Back. Talking with Rich Barons. Rich, where can uh, our listeners find your book? Uh, it, it should be in, uh, in, in most bookstores, right? But uh, uh, there seem to be less and less of them around these days. So, so the safest place is Amazon, right? So it, it, you'll, you'll find it if you just type in what are your blind spots and Rich Barons or Jim Howden or any combination thereof, and it should pop up. And that's probably the easiest way and easiest place to buy it. All right. And how if they wanted to find out more about uh, Rich or Root Inc.? If they want to find out more about uh, myself or the company, just go to www.rootinc.com. And uh, there are lots of case studies, lots of practical tools and, and things that are, are useful for folks as it relates to the two blind spots we talked about, as well as the other three, as, as well as just how if you're a leader who's looking to engage your organization more effectively in your strategy or you're going through a transformation and a big change, you know, you're, you're looking for, for things that might help you think about it the right way. I think you'll find lots of resources there. Excellent. So Rich, I want to finish with one question and that is, as we're talking about blind spots, somebody's listening, they're, they're driving to work right now and they're thinking, oh gosh, I'm a human being, I'm a leader, I must have some blind spots. How can leaders identify their own blind spot? They can, maybe you've got a tool, some, some practical ways to help us figure out where are we blind because it's hard to know what it is you don't know. It, it is hard to, to, to know where you might have your blind spots. Absolutely, as you, even you go to some of the examples I, I mentioned at the very beginning of our call, right, where often only in retrospect will you, uh, uh, will you have that awareness. Well, one very easy one, actually, if, if you go to the book at the end, there's a there's a, there's a self and a team assessment. So if you want to just have a, a, a very easy method, um, you, can, you can give that assessment to your team, right? Uh, you can start with yourself and, and see if you can identify them, give them to your team, and, and they'll often have a much easier time identifying them for you, and then debrief on those, right? And, and uh, um, I, I think that's one really easy, easy thing to do. You can do that in 15 minutes or less, and obviously it probably opens up conversations that are far longer. Um, if you, uh, if you didn't want to do that, uh, and by the way, that's on the website and it's free, right? So, uh, if you go to the website, Root Inc., it's, it's free there. Uh, if, if you didn't want to do that, I think, um, you know, you can go as basic as I think having a team meeting that doesn't have a very tight agenda where you say, Hey, I, I want to talk about how we can be even better than who we, uh, than, than who we are as a leader, be vulnerable and say, and that all starts with, with with things we can individually do. Uh, and I know I'm not perfect and I know I might not know everything that, that I could do better. So everybody has to give me one or two pieces of advice on things where I, I might have a blind spot or where I could be a better leader. Right. Yeah. And if yeah. you just start that way, uh, you know, I think just by starting the conversation and having people feel safe, knowing that you authentically want to know, uh, you're more than halfway there. Boy, just asking for that kind of 360 degree feedback from people, you know, personally, not, you know, you don't have to do it through a big formal survey and all the rest to just do it human being to human being. Uh, I know that in my career, I found that to be a, a incredibly valuable exercise. Wow. Rich, just another, uh, a very practical solution. Love the wall of greatness, wall of reality. So many great tools and ways to help us overcome those blind spots that can keep us from leading more effectively. Rich, thank you for being on the show today. Thanks for having me, David. Appreciate it. Our pleasure. Again, the name of the book is What Are Your Blind Spots? Conquering the Five Misconceptions That Hold Leaders Back. And you can find it anywhere books are sold. It is time to answer a question. I love answering your questions and I'd love to answer yours. So you can send me your favorite question about leadership management or a specific question related to one of the previous episodes 
You can do that one of two ways. First, you can send me an email at david.die at letsgrowleaders.com or you can go to leadershipwithoutlosingyoursoul.com and you'll find the appropriate button. It's big, it's orange. Click that and you can leave a voice recording. And that's what Julian has done today. So let's get to Julian's question. Hey David, this is Julian from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And thank you again for giving me the opportunity to ask a question. My question would be, how can managers or leaders instill a sense of responsibility and accountability with their staff so that they do the best out of every task they, they do and they don't wait for the managers or for the leaders to tell them what to do, but they take initiative on doing the, the task themselves? Thank you. Julian, thank you so much for this question. This is one of those questions I think every leader wrestles with at some point in their career. How do I get my teams to engage, to take initiative and do things at a level of excellence, or even to just solve problems and take initiative without having to be told to do everything? So there are several answers to this question. I think it's an ideal question to ask after Rich's interview here. So the first answer I'm going to give you is one that people often miss. Who are you hiring? It is very common for me to run into managers who hire people who will follow instructions. I just need people to do what they're told. And then they get frustrated when those people just do what they're told. If you want people who will take initiative and will solve problems on their own, hire for that. You can ask behavioral interviewing questions that help you determine how frequently they do that, how easily that kind of behavior comes to them. So that's the first thing. Hire people who will do what you need done. And if you're hiring for other skill sets, recognize that it's going to be more rare to find people who are self-starters and take initiative if they're also really good at following clear, concise directions and doing what they're told to do. Now, the next step is all about expectations. And we talked about this several episodes ago. What does success look like? If I were to go and interview your team members and ask them, what does success look like for your role, for this team? Would they tell me something like, well, listen, our leader provides us a good direction and tells us, you know, gives us a good sense of what we're supposed to achieve and what we're supposed to accomplish. And then day to day, I need to make decisions and take action and take initiative to figure out the best way to get there. If that's what success looks like for your team, your people need to be able to articulate that. They need to be well aware that that's what it looks like. And you want to reinforce that regularly. And the third element is really what Rich was talking about earlier in today's episode is clearly defining the boundaries and the resources and the guidelines. And so Rich used the terminology hard lines, guidelines, and no lines. What resources can people use without asking? What do they have at their disposal that they just need to make a decision and go? What are the resources that they might need to ask about? And then what are the things they absolutely can't touch? For instance, if they're trying to solve a customer's problem. Well, all of that can be defined and laid out ahead of time so that when a person is in the moment, they know exactly what freedom they have to make a decision that they need to make a decision, that expectation has been laid out, these are the resources I have available, now I can go and do this. And then, as with everything else, as people are doing it, 
take the time to celebrate it when it happens. You get more of what you encourage and celebrate, less of what you criticize or ignore. So don't ignore those moments, especially as you're helping your team cultivate that kind of behavior. Make a big deal about it. This is exactly what we're talking about. This is what success looks like. Really well done here, folks. So to summarize, make sure you're hiring people who will take initiative and who are committed to doing excellent work at every level. Be sure to define what success looks like. Success is taking initiative. Success means excellence, and this is what excellence looks like. We're not going to leave that to chance. You want to be very clear about that so everybody knows the required level of work for this team. And then finally, clarify the boundaries, the resources. Lay out with clear definitions what freedoms we do and don't have to be able to take initiative and solve the problems we need to solve. Thanks again for your question, and thanks for listening. I look forward to being with you next time, and until then, be the leader you want your boss to be. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.